Hi, everyone. I would like to welcome you to another episode of MK Speaks. I'm Dr. Marianne Kyle. I am your host for today's show, and I'm really honored to have with me my dear sister friend and pastoral trauma counselor, Megan Owen-Cox from Mountain City Christian Counseling. So welcome, Megan. I'm so happy to be here. I love your work, DK. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Megan. Well, so this is a third part. There were two, two other podcasts we did about this topic of what is natural is not always easy. And so, of course, what brought this up was initially me thinking about my journey as an athlete and my journey through therapy. So it's a mind, body, spirit thing for me. But I was thinking about running. And I've often told my friends, if you see me running, something's chasing me. <laughs> and- <laughs> Look behind me, make sure, because it's it's not a natural process. And one of the things I noticed when I was running recently, I began to concentrate more on this idea of what my mind was saying to me as I ran and what my breath was telling me about the state of my body, because I knew that I was getting in shape. So I remember as I was running one night, I thought to myself, I'm really, really tired. I really don't want to do this. And I noticed that my body and my breathing primarily followed suit. So I had decided the next night that I was going to work consciously on getting rid of that negative dialogue in my head and concentrating just on the sound of my breath and nothing else. And it was interesting. That was the very next night. And I said to my husband that this night running didn't feel easy. It felt natural. And so it just sort of brought up this whole conversation of working through things to get them to the point where they feel natural, but sometimes they tend to stress us out in terms of our, our central nervous system. So case in point, you and I have been doing a lot of work this year and you do a lot of work with a lot of beautiful people. And oftentimes our negative behaviors, repetitive behaviors have become natural to us. And sometimes those natural those things that feel natural also are very much self-destructive in terms of our relationships with other people. So I wanted to ask you a couple of things. But first, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with people uh, in your capacity? Absolutely. So I am a pastoral trauma counselor. So I work primarily with trauma survivors. And that's any type of trauma. It, It might be physical abuse, spiritual abuse, mental uh, especially people with complex trauma. I do a lot of work with CPTSD survivors. Um, and some of it is talk therapy and some of it is processing. And what I mean by processing is we will do EMDR or eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And I'm also certified in DNMS, which is developmental needs meeting strategy. Uh, I know those are really big terms for inner child work. And you talked about behavior. You talked about behavioral patterns. And that's something that we really look at, don't we? We look at those patterns. We look at behavior. Not because we just want to fix the behavior or fix anything, but because the behavior are indicators of what's going on sotto voce. So, yeah, that's what I do. And so what was your question? Your original question was... Tell us a little bit about what you what you do and what you encounter, because I know we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about people often come to you and they need to find out the why behind those things that they do. And it comes from that wounded child trauma or wounded child part. But oftentimes in identifying the root cause of it, they then have to do some very difficult work to look at that and then move through it therapeutically to get to a place where they can be whole and restored and live uh, as themselves, as as God intended them to be. So I wanted you to kind of tell us a little bit about what you did and how you address that in terms of your process as a counselor. Okay, so let me put it sort of in these terms. So say I have a client come to me and he is, uh, he's drinking all the time. He's numbing himself all the time. Now, I could deal with that outward behavior, right? And we could start a chart on and and wean him off of alcohol or send him to some sort of a group where he'll have accountability. Or we can do what you just said. We can figure out why. When we have an addiction, there's always a lack of connection. And that addiction can be really anything 
uh, Marianne. It can be an addiction to uh, to pornography. It can be an addiction to a drug. It can be addiction to work. You could be a workaholic. You know, there are a lot of different addictions and some of them look very, very noble. But actually what we need to do is decide, why are you doing this, right? Mm -hmm. What are you numbing? What are you pushing down? What part of you is, is hurting and wounded and trying not to feel? And so uh, you, we're, you and I are already using parts language here. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we do as counselors when we are proponents of internal family system, which basically means that we all have our own family on the inside. We do. Uh, you have a wife part of you. You also have a teacher part of you. You have a mother part of you, a grandmother part of you. We all have different parts. And some of those parts are very, very young. And some of those parts picked up coping skills that now feel, like you said, normal. They've been normalized. But we get exhausted and we get worn down and we get burned out by these coping skills, even if they look okay to everybody on the outside. Because what we're really trying to do is fix something inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so we use these skills to self-soothe maybe a wounded 12-year-old, maybe a wounded six-year-old, maybe a wounded toddler. And while, again, on the outside, we might look really magnificent for whatever it is that we're using, we're still using something and that's going to cause burnout. So anytime you're trying to fix something, you will become burned out. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just bringing this in because I, as you know, I'm a, a hospice chaplain on weekends and a trauma counselor during the week. And I don't think a day goes by where someone says, how are you not burned out? How do you do this? How do you see eight clients a day? Because I'm not trying to fix them. And because I'm not doing it out of my woundedness. Mm -hmm. It's not behavior that has, that looks organic on the outside, but I'm trying to somehow satisfy something in myself. It actually comes from a place of being healed and yeah. not needing to use anything because I'm willing to feel my emotions. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, this brings up something that uh, that I know you encounter, but oftentimes with, you know, the first thing I'll ask my students when they sing for me is, what did you like about what you did? And that question quite often takes them, catches them off guard, and they want to give me the list of things they did not do well. And it's funny how that dialogue in the brain, we then make that something somehow positive. Well, it's it, this is a good thing for me to self-criticize. So many behaviors that we have taken on, and I guess in our lifetime, to to th that you call our super coping skills. <laughs> we over yeah, the longer we do them, those super coping skills become like badges of honor. Look at look at look at what I'm doing with what I have here, and we identify those as positive which I think it makes it even more difficult for us to surrender those behaviors. Yes. Um, yeah. Because we hold it as something positive. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so that that's, um, I think that you and I have talked about this. How do you then discover whether or not you're super coping with all of this stuff that we're doing to try to heal ourselves or reenactment or all these other things or, um, maybe we're just doing them. How do we, how do we differentiate between the two? Um, and I, and I know you've asked me this before, and I think there are a couple of ways. I think that I do that in my practice through reflection. So maybe a client says something to me, I'm suspecting that it's not a healthy thing. It's become part of that client's life. They don't realize that the criticize self-criticism is is actually not a great thing. Um, and like you said, it's it's just far easier, it seems, for us to criticize ourselves than to recognize our goodness and glory, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so if I have a client who's coming to me and saying, um, you know, this is this is how I I 
run my life is I listen to that inner critic and I, every night before I go to bed, I look at my notebook and say, okay, what could I have done better? Right? Well, okay. So that sounds great, but is it, what are we telling ourselves? Who are we agreeing with? Who in our lives was critical of us at the end of the day? Why are we doing that? And so what I might do is I might use fresh language to reflect back to them what I just heard them say. So actually what you're saying is before you go to bed, you point out all your faults to yourself, right? Wow. That's one way. The other way is something I know you're familiar with as a brilliant vocalist and teacher. And that is, what is your body telling you while you're doing this? Because our body will never lie to us. We'll lie to ourselves. Other people will lie to us, but our bodies will never lie. Yes, bingo. You're absolutely right. And you and I've talked about this before because you are a trained singer and you're a trained pianist and dancer. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about what our bodies say to us when we're in this act of beautiful creation, how sometimes our dialogue turns something beautiful into almost a weapon. And our that act of self-criticism that we have been taught is something positive. And, you know, we see this plethora of self-help books out there where they're like, just get up off your butt and do this. And, and you, you, you're a drill sergeant. You're just lazy. Get up. Yes. Dawkins comes to mind. I, I like listening to him, but he's like, Oh my, he is, he's intense. But this, we're brought up in this, in this environment that self-criticism is somehow helpful. And one of the things you have really helped me with is self-criticism versus self-reflection, which the body, I think the body has a very different reaction to that when we're talking about just literally about something feeling more natural. I think when we have, we have self-reflection, that's a totally different thing. I love that. Self-reflection, self-compassion, those qualities really keep us from judging ourselves. So we don't want to judge the thoughts that even the critical thoughts that might come into our head, we want to say, okay, I see you and you're just a thought. I don't know why you're there, but I'm going to get to the bottom of it. This is actually not helpful, but I appreciate what you're trying to do. So most of us, when we're talking about sort of this inner critic, we developed an inner critic at some point to avoid cognitive dissonance. It used to serve us well, It doesn't serve us well anymore. Okay, can you give us an example of that? (laughs) Right. So we are, the way that our brains are magnificently created is that between the ages of zero and five, we're, we're just soaking things up. You know, our personalities are formed by the time we're five. Five to nine, we're sort of starting to become our own little person. Babies are naturally born believing they're all that, and we do everything we can to prove that to them, right? Like a baby cries, we're all coming running. We're that baby is the center of our world, as it should be, because the 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 crying and the fussing, that's the baby's way to communicate. I have needs and I need them met. Research shows that we literally can look into our mother's eyes as a baby, see our reflection and receive what are called mirror neurons. I'm okay. I belong to my mother. This is exactly where I need to be. Really, really beautiful. Um, Say though that this little itty bitty child has a very critical mother. And for a long time, she's saying, no, I'm just a baby girl. I'm created in the image of God. I'm loved. I'm beautiful because that's kind of how we come out. We, we do have glory and goodness as a baby, but we have this critical voice, you know, maybe over here. And then we get to be six and this becomes unbearable. This is cognitive dissonance in our brain. We can either split at this point and fracture, or we can adopt the criticism and call it our own. Wow. And now we have an inner critic. It's just That inner critic might sound like the mother, but it's not. It's actually a part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, that behavior seems normal to the person. It's normalized, but it's not normal. Mm -hmm. It's not normal to have an inner critic. 
Yeah, that's boring. And you, you see, you see, I know you see a lot of people with a lot of different physical manifestations that occur that often, I think probably oftentimes some of these physical manifestations are what brings them to you initially, rather than saying, you know, I really want to fix my internal dialogue. <laughs> right. Nobody says that. Right. <laughs> they, they are saying, I, you know, the symptoms might be sometimes I feel like a little child, I'm out doing adult things. And all of a sudden, I just have this response in my body. I'm scared of all this. I'm over here um, with this addiction. And I know there's something off. And that's when we want to turn people toward themselves. Mm -hmm. Let's connect with your body. But I love what you said earlier, you said, I noticed my breath. You didn't judge your breath. You noticed it. And that, I love that because again, behaviors are symptoms. Behaviors are little flags of the soul, little red flags saying, need healing over here, need healing over here, you know? And they're like well-intentioned friends. (laughs) Yes, we mean well. Yes, exactly. I know, thank you for helping me survive for a certain time and now, you're actually causing me to really hurt. So let's find you a new job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because I know you and I've talked about this and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but you know, as a, as a singer and as a teacher outside of the things I'm working on personally from my past and behaviors, as a singer and a teacher, it was really easy for me to understand and incorporate this idea of my spirit being attached to my breath And being in that quiet place of just being in the music and being in the moment rather than criticizing or deciding which direction I'm going to go. So it was so interesting that I understood that organically as a singer. And I go there as a teacher as well, because as a teacher, I need to be in that spot in order to be able to read my students and really be where they are in that moment and not let my agenda get too far ahead of, of their needs but that I struggle so much with it in, in other areas of my life and had to work, work on that aspect. And so what are some of the things when, when you're working with people, what are some of the, the, the biggest obstacles, self, self-placed barriers that they put up to their own healing process? What do you see in them? Right. So that's such a good question. And I do love that about you. It was easy to say, when you're teaching, when you're singing, when you're in that magical Marianne place, you are your truest self. You are working out of your spiritual core self, the most grown up adult, wisest, beautiful part of you. And, and your studio, we would say is your glimmer. So we're looking for glimmers of our truest self, our most honest, raw, vulnerable self, the, the spark, essence of Marianne, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so back to saying how we all have different parts. Mm-hmm. We have sometimes parts that sabotage us, okay. right? Little saboteurs, well-meaning saboteurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in IFS parts language, we call those protector parts and firefighter parts. What are, tell, tell us what IFS is. Well, that's the internal family systems family. that we incorporate into my practice. So when you, uh, you and I do developmental needs meeting strategy, we're bringing our different parts in, right? Correct. That's correct. So we have parts that maybe don't serve us well anymore that we've developed, like the inner critic. Yes. That's probably a protector part. That we developed as a child. Um, we have protector parts that keep us from getting close to anybody. This is a, a very typical sort of way of describing it. So say I was really, really hurt by my dad, which is not true. I had a wonderful father, but say I was really hurt by my dad. And then I'm dating. And anytime I start to get close to a man, I get mean and nasty and hurt his feelings and wreck it before it even gets started. So this protector has risen up and said, not safe, men are not safe. So let's end this now. And that's a part that maybe I developed as a child. Yes, okay. Okay, firefighter parts are parts that come in when they feel threatened 
And it really, the uh, imagery is perfect. It's, you know, say a house is on fire and they come in with the sprayer and they're not looking to like save this photo album or the book over there. It's just put the fire out. Firefighter parts come up when our system feels like it's on overload. When we have so many emotions and nobody ever taught us to navigate the negative emotions. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that brings up something I, I really wanted to talk about. And that is, and I encountered this with myself I in the past I have, but I also encountered it with my students. And, and that is, we have a tendency to shy away from things and processes and work that we need to do when our bodies, our central nervous systems begin to get challenged. And so, you know, I use the tribe analogy. You had to get out and you, as a functioning member of the tribe, you had to get out and go and hunt and gather every day. You might have wanted to sit in the cave and not do that because you felt challenged when the tigers were chasing you, but you still had to go out there and be a part of this tribe. And I see a lot of students these days backing away from anything that exercises their central nervous system in any way, whether it's perceived to be helpful or not. So how, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how friable we have become and how much we want to back away from that and just go to our telephone? <laughs> yes, I, I could not agree with you more. And I, you know, of course I have four kids, two young adults, two in high school now, and uh, I have seen the same. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the phenomena is here, but I agree with you in that we have to learn to navigate the negative emotions. I don't know if it's parents just really trying to protect their kids from things that hurt us when we were growing up, because that's natural, right? Like that's, that's a, an instinct in us. I don't know if it's uh, uh, this North American belief that bad emo or bad emotions are bad or bad emotions are not supposed to be felt or oh. uh, I recently sort of read uh and there's a book bittersweet that I just read about and she sort of goes back in time and shows how we've become adverse to any negative emotions as because if we experience negative emotions we're not quite as put together as we need to be and we don't want to be seen as a loser and we want to be professional. And so we learn that you just step those negative emotions down or you don't feel them. And so we have a whole generation of kids that are terrified and panicked if they begin to feel something negative. But here's the thing. We move in and out of the different places of our nervous system all day long. We have a problem if we've camped out in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. If we live there, that's when maybe we need to look at taking medication. But I could tell you numbing the emotions so there's nothing negative is not the answer. The answer is navigate with your kids. Be sympathetic with your kids. Give them the mirror neurons. Show them that you feel those things too. So we want human interconnectedness for these kids. Yeah, that's normal human feeling. We want uh, validation. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes too. Yeah, you're human. We want compassion. Yes. That must've been very painful, right? Yes. Because we can survive any negative emotion if we have our tribe to borrow your, if we have. <laughs> and I recently um, also read that in, you know, the movie Inside Out. Yeah. Originally, they did not want sadness to be such a big part. They didn't want sadness at all in the movie. Do you remember sadness, the little sort of blue lady with the short black hair and the glasses? <laughs> Actually, if you really look at the movie, she ends up saving the day. There was no joy without her. There's no compassion from other humans and interconnectedness, mm -hmm. which I would say is shalomic mm -hmm. without sadness. Yes, I like that. And to go back and, and, and kind of tie this in with the idea of the breath and the spirit, particularly, you know, with 
us singing and teaching and just moving throughout our day, I know I would try to stop my emotions because I, my, it was my perception that if I let my heavier emotions flow, I wouldn't be able to function in the capacity that I was moving through as a teacher or mother or wife or whatever. And so I would oftentimes stop those emotions. Yet when we begin to find appropriate, healthy ways to allow those things to flow, the first thing I noticed when I was doing it was that singing had always been natural, but it became even more fulfilling. It wasn't just a natural act anymore in terms of my technique. It was like my spirit aligned with my music. I could feel and sense what the music was trying to tell me because I wasn't trying to stop, control, push down. It was all a process of flow. It wasn't forced in any way. And I think that lines perfectly with us finding appropriate ways with appropriate help to allow our emotions to flow and to find out the root cause of some of those distorted ideas of who we are and, and those wounded parts. Yes, I love that. That's powerful. I, I am in awe over how you work with breath without controlling it because it 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 shouldn't be controlled, not like you know, I know a lot of people do breath work and I know that that's coping. I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I just want people to notice what is your breath telling you? Right? That's, that's And that's amazing too. I was having a conversation recently because I'm using in my practice as a teacher and singer, I'm using these exercises that are about flow uh, and listening to the sound of the air or feeling the air, but not trying to control it. And the purpose of that is to move the brain into a theta state then eventually into an alpha state and then to an appropriate beta state for singing. And that's so that they can learn to self calm because they are going to do something at times quite athletic with their singing, but also quite spiritual. And so if they learn in the process of letting the air flow in these exercises to self calm, it gives the brain a quiet place, but an aware place for them to begin when they start to sing. And that makes them self assess very differently. I think in, in terms of what they do, when they get on stage. And that's been a huge thing. I've talked to a lot of teachers because we have been taught all our lives as singers and teachers to control the breath. And so a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times. And so what do we do? We try to assume active control over something that can be controlled by flow. And we oftentimes, you've talked to me, we're like, where well, we feel things in our body. Well, if those of us who are hypercritical of our performing and singing, where do we control the breath? In here and in here. And that's a center that does what? That's, a that's center. our fight, flight, panic place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll tell my students, you know, if you're trying to control the air and this part of your body is reacting to control, your central nervous system doesn't know whether you're singing or about to be eaten by a tiger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This And this is what I love about what you do. I love so many things about what you do. But what you're saying right now just fills me with wonder. It's amazing. Um, and I really love your emphasis on flow. And I think we're on to something here. So a lot of my clients are afraid that once they start feeling the dam will burst, right? Yeah. It's going to swallow me up. I won't be able to function. And I'm, I'm telling you, nobody ever died from feeling a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we have built-in mechanisms to help us to cope, such as tears, yeah. such as movement, such as art, poetry, music. Those are gifts for us to be able to manage the negative emotions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if we get to a place as humans where instead of uh, letting a dam burst every couple of years, we have a flow of our emotions and our tears, and it's just a place we live in every day, there's a lot of freedom in that, a lot of movement. Um, our emotions are invisible in a lot of of ways we see the symptoms of our emotions but our emotions are invisible and we can allow that flow through our spirits and then we don't experience that stuckness or overwhelm yeah. or burnout ah yeah i totally agree i it, it it was interesting too i was thinking about one of the things you know i've been talking about recently about allowing ourselves to be rather than do and yeah. the difference in the way our brain and body process is doing 
we are less aware of ourselves and our relationships with others around us in the moment when we are doing constantly. And it's amazing to me how those of us who have been in a state of do all their lives, <laughs> how life feels very short and very frenetic and not very fulfilling. But the minute you stop and take a step back and you just say, I'm going to be in this moment, still you're doing things but you're present with people and you're present in the moment, how it changes your perspective on even things that might seem difficult to us. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and if we go back to what feels natural and the awards that society will give us for doing, 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 oh, she's accomplished so much. He's done so much. He works so hard for da, 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 da. So it's hard. This is a tricky one. Because my clients can move from doing one thing into doing another thing. And now we have a new coping skill, right? Especially the super copers. And so just being is going to feel counterintuitive. It's going to feel unnatural at first, but actually it's the most natural thing that we can do is be present in relationships with ourselves with others and there is a natural flow that happens between two people when you're just two people just being right yeah. enjoying, enjoying each other's presence and things do slow down and your cup is full and you know that the there's no dry well anywhere where you're grasping for something from somewhere else and uh yet again it's counterintuitive but the more you do it the more neurons you create, more remapping that you do of how you want to live your life. And you can't undo those neurons that are created as you're remapping your brain and the way you live. Um, you just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. And then, like you said, it becomes natural. And I'm going to bring in one more thing about this. And that is, I just recently uh, heard a new definition of obey from mm -hmm. Stephen Jenkins. And he talks about obedience to our bodies and our souls as being going with the grain of who we were meant to be. I like that. Yeah. And so when you teach music, when you sing, you're going with the grain of who Marianne was made to be. Mm -hmm. Right. That's obedience. That is natural. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I work with clients or when I'm doing chaplain work on weekends, I never feel burned out. I'm not doing it for unnatural reasons. <laughs> I love it. I feel God's pleasure when I do it. And I'm going with the grain of who Megan was supposed to be. And the only way to discover who that is, is to do that hard work, to get the clouds out of the way so you can see the sun of your soul. Yeah, I love that. I love and I love how we talk about that spiritual core self, which I think is the mirror of God, God who who he made us to be. It's our spirit. It's the best parts of ourselves. I talk a lot about and singing about the whole spirit breath idea of finding that thing that isn't. I tell students when you are breathing in, you don't want the breath to be about the, the intensity of the emotion of the song you're delivering, particularly if it's anger or something like that, because then that part of you, your body reacts to that emotion in the inhale. So I always ask the students, I said, look at the person and decide what their spirit trait is. And the spirit trait I tell them is not something that was learned or affected by life or trauma or whatever. The spirit trait is who God made them to be. It's a pure trait. And then I will ask them to identify that trait. And then as they breathe in, they name it for that trait and then let the words be the talking about the emotion that's occurring in the song. And it's amazing how their bodies align so quickly with that idea and they don't struggle as much. And then their awareness of what's in the music, artistically, musically, that got that God spark that's in the music, they become aware of it. Whereas they could, they were deaf to it before because they were trying to incorporate these raw emotions into the inhale. So I love it when I see a student align with their spiritual core self. And I love that you talk about that so much 
because that we, I think oftentimes we think when we go through traumatic experiences and we will self-identify with all the thing, terrible things we've done, I was terrible at this and this and this and this, that we begin to think that our spiritual core self is something that diminishes and goes away over time. And so we get to the point in life where we're like, well, I'm 50 something years old and I'm a screw up. So I'm going to always be a, a mess. And we forget that that part of us is there. It can get covered over by things. Yes, and the part of us is indestructible. It's indestructible. It's there before we're born, and it's going on from this lifetime. Amen. I like that. That makes ah. I love it. And I just, I don't know. That affects everything I do in teaching and singing and as a human. And I love to s send that gift along to others because I see it transform everything in their life from self-criticism and how they judge to, to all the way down to this is what I want to do for the rest of my life because I feel it in my spirit is right for me. And that really, I think, particularly as hard as music is as a profession, nothing's guaranteed in what we do. But to see a young person go from, I have to do these things so I can be famous and I've got to get on Broadway and I've got to get on this and this, to see them go from that to, you know what, I'm going to participate actively and be aware of my own creating in music. And I'm just going to be in the moment with what I do. The difference in what is noticed about them as an artist versus the other doer, it's a totally different, it reads in their body in a totally different way. And I'll often say people will notice that and identify with you when you are, are, you, are you're working through your creative process. They see your spirit and you're not up there going, you're not out there going, look what I can do. Look what I can do. It is emanates. It's an inside out thing that emanates from within you, changes the way you do it, I think. I'm getting chills just hearing this. And, and this is what we watch you do. Uh, we feel that. We we feel the the, um, the the way that you breathe in, the way that you present, the posture that you have that's communicated to all of us who watch you. It's so evident. You're, I don't even know how your body holds your spirit. It's so big. <laughs> God created it, and I have great mentors like you and others that help me unearth it and, and stay true to myself. <laughs> Otherwise, well, that's that what you just said, staying true to myself. And so what you're teaching your students to do is to be authentically them, walking within their integrity as an artist, as a creator. And, you know, when you exercise your creative abilities, you look like your creator because of God's creative abilities. He he did put our souls in us. We have the Imago Dei. We, we are in the image of God and you are directing them to that, whether you know it or not. You're saying, see, you're like your creator. Oh, I, that's just awesome. It's, it fills me with awe. It's, I, and I wish that for every teacher that is doing what they're doing in every performer because it is something that transcends time in the career in ways that probably we'll never know until after we're in heaven. <laughs> we won't know. The butterfly effect. I mean, every student you talk to, every client I talk to, every patient I talk to, we are, we're making a difference. We are helping people to connect to who they are. Yeah. The best version of who they are. And I don't mean that in terms of skill. I mean that in terms of soul. Yeah. I love that. And I, if anyone who's listening to this, that, is involved in some of the things we do. I hope you'll take heart. If you're feeling really burned out at the moment, I hope you'll take heart in listening to us talk about this because it really does rejuvenate us, the two of us. I know every day because we both work tremendously uh, uh, difficult schedules, but it is rejuvenating for us because of we operate out of these this abundance. And I hope that encourages people who are listening to this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to encourage them as well and say, you don't have to fix anything or anybody. It's all we have to do is be with the people that we are serving, that we are loving. That's how we avoid burnout is I'm just going to come alongside you and I'm just going to naturally share my gifts with you, what I see, what you're doing. And that helps a lot. And, and one more thing, there's nothing wrong with you to the listeners. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing inherently wrong with you on the inside. You were made in the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you know, it's, I, I do have another question I want to ask you in a minute, but one of the other things too is God is also trying to give us back a gift as we give in that connection with people. He is also pouring back into us and that's our gift from him via our students, via our clients. And so I think it just becomes this beautiful, again, it's about flow, it becomes this beautiful flow between people. That's, that's evidence <laughs> of God. I love that. I think that's what is meant by when people say shalom, that's that wholeness, that flow between people. I don't need to insert anything into anybody. I want to learn about you. I want to know you, right? Yeah. Yes, that's that beautiful internal curiosity that I think flows through what we do that, it, that I don't know, it's just, it's a fascinating thing for me to see how it shows up in teaching and my, how God shows up in my singing, not because I'm very special, but just because it becomes that flow and that sharing. And I just, th that's how I know I'll sing much longer than most people will, because that's where my concentration is not so much improving. Look at my great vocals, <laughs> but yeah. let this, that's how I know that you're doing it right <laughs> because the burnout happens again when we feel like we have to fix or insert something into somebody else rather than I want you to shine I want you to heal you know I, t I tell my clients your job is to put me out of a job <laughs> you can, you have everything inside of you that you need to heal and to work on these things and how do I get burned out if I'm if I'm just reminding people that they have all the tools they need inside of themselves, you know? Correct. That's correct. So I, I did have one question uh, that I wanted to ask you, and then we'll wrap up here in a minute. But I, I often tell people, you know, that who will go see therapists and they'll talk, do a lot of talk therapy. And there is this sort of complex PTSD, trauma bound stuff uh, that we talk about. But related to the actual cognitive rewiring, uh, that basically talk therapy can take you so far, but talk to us about that, the processes of cognitive rewiring that really give us freedom uh, from a lot of these behaviors and uh, understanding of who we really are. Okay. Yeah, that is a great question. So I, I think there are two other components besides talk therapy that help people with complex PTSD. Now, complex PTSD, nobody has the perfect cure. Mm -hmm. It's my personal belief that connecting people to God themselves and others is the answer. Okay. So outside of talk therapy, which really is, you know, tell me your story, tell me how you feel about this and let me sort of reflect it back to you. And, you know, let's just go through it and you don't have to be alone in processing it. That, that can help. That can also dig deeper grooves of trauma. So we can re-traumatize our clients if they're just going through things over and over and over, going from one counselor to the next and having to repeat the same stories. It's very re-traumatizing. And now we have deep grooves in our neural pathways of our brain. Mm -hmm. So a big part of healing for me in my practice, <laughs> healing for my clients in my practice with me, the way I think about it, besides talk therapy is the relationship. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna get to the neuroscience in a minute, but the relationship is of vital importance. Right. Because people with complex trauma don't necessarily have a blueprint for a healthy relationship. So people with complex trauma will often think, okay, there's something wrong with me. I can't have decent relationships. Maybe it wasn't modeled. We didn't, we didn't have that experience growing up. Maybe we had brothers and sisters and they just fought all the time and we never learned how to talk, discuss, hold space and make repair, which is the stuff of relationships. There was no healthy conflict. We weren't allowed to feel, right? I don't know, I, I don't know if it's generational, but at my house, we just, negative emotions were bad. And so I learned very young, just, yeah, don't talk to, don't talk to your parents about it. Mm -hmm. And th that can cause all of these CPTSD symptoms. And so when I have an opportunity with a client to work through things, 
maybe I said something that hurt their feeling. I'm not, I'm not afraid to be wrong. (laughs) And then I can say, oh my gosh, I totally see that from your perspective. Mm -hmm. Thank you for telling me. I am so sorry. My clients will be like, what, what, you know, (laughs) someone's taking responsibility for doing something wrong. This is unheard of. I don't understand. But, and it, and again, it feels unnatural, right? And then we keep on going. Okay. Wow. That's a real, that's a real relationship where we have healthy conflict. And, and sometimes I'll think, okay, why did I do that? Why did I say that? What was I trying to do? You know, and I'll be transparent about it. And yeah. then now we have a relationship where there's trust. Yes. That's huge because you leave the counseling room and you have relationships with other people that were like this with me. And now we have new recordings in our brain of healthy relationships. And we just won't settle for less after that, right? And your modeling is probably totally different for them in your responses than they've ever experienced. And so. Exactly. And then you have for the first time, wow. Yeah, we can have health. I can, I can meet people like that who will be, you know, healthy and normal, (laughs) not yell at me, not bite my head off, you know, those kinds of things. And then, so then at the part that I think you really want me to get to is the neuroscience part of the rewiring, the remapping of our brain, right? (laughs) It is really remarkable. So the EMDR, which is reprocessing a memory while we are crossing the midline of our body. So maybe a light bar, maybe like paddles that you hold in your hand, even walking can do that and running. Um, You can process things that way. I think that's why people say, oh, I just get all my thoughts out when I'm running. Well, you're actually connecting your hemispheres of your brain while you're doing it and you're processing it in a different way. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So EMDR has incredible results, Mm -hmm. usually typically within 24 hours. It can be brutal. We have a whole protocol for People, people need to be safe, you know, feel emotionally safe, not be in an, an abusive situation, you know, these kinds of things. Yes. And it's not for everybody. And then we have what I do, which is the developmental needs meeting strategy, which I we're coming full circle because I mentioned that at the beginning. That also uses alternating bilateral stimulation. We're, we're now bringing in perspective into those deep grooves of trauma. So we're reprocessing reactions as children. We're reprocessing memories. Maybe we have a different perspective. Maybe the client brings in a different perspective. Maybe I feel a little different perspective in there. It's like throwing a wrench into a machine that just goes around and around and around and around. Oh, wait. And now we have a new pathway, right? I think you know what I'm talking about. So you might have a memory that you remember one way and it's made a recording in your brain. And now with a strategy, with this trauma modality, either EMDR or DNMS, mm-hmm. we're looking at it maybe from an adult place, mm-hmm. yeah. not living it from a child place, or maybe, maybe we realize that it wasn't that child's fault at all. Maybe you can step back as a bystander and say, wait a minute, where were the adults, you know, or what, how, where was the accountability or so, yeah, we're reframing and we're rewiring, and it's very exciting. It's the, the miracle of it is they physically know in the brain that when you have a repetitive behavior thought process, that it forms grooves in the brain like a trail. Mm-hmm. And the more those occur, the deeper the trail gets. But the miracle in that is that when you begin to reframe the rewire the pathways that groove actually diminishes as the new one is formed. And so that's kind of the beautiful thing. The, the lesson I think in all of this and talking what, about what we've been talking about today is the reframing is, is difficult. Yes. The therapy it's not natural. There's a reason they say therapy is hard work. This yeah. is the hard work because it is like the, the analogy I use is, you know, say you've got some, this pattern that your whole family had, and it was actually very toxic and you are a train running downhill. That's the track. That's the deep groove. And in order to 
rewire that and remap it, you have to get out of the caboose, get the caboose, I, I don't know, caboose, <laughs> get, the, get the caboose or the train off the tracks and then push it back uphill a different way. Right. The brain is working so hard and it's not easy, no. but you can't undo it once you've done it. You can't go back and say, no, nah, I think I'm going to go back to that toxic way of thinking. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think probably, you know, to, to wrap up our, our discussion, whether you're singing, whether you're working through, you know, issues from your past and really committing to work through it therapeutically, whether you're taking on a fitness challenge, these things will be difficult at times. But eventually, depending on how you're how the work kind of work you're doing, it can become more natural to walk through that process once you've done the work. And so I think so many of us want to shy away from that. But it I can tell you from one who is on the other side how it is the most difficult thing you'll ever have to do to go through this process therapeutically. But it is the one it's the only thing I've ever encountered that let me know that I didn't have to, that I didn't have to return back to those things that I could actually move forward in my life and didn't have to revisit all of those past memories. And so it has been life-changing for me working with you just from a human standpoint, a spiritual standpoint, but it has had impacts, an impact on my teaching, my singing, and every other aspect of my life. And that's why I wanted to end our, our this third part. I wanted you and I to end this together because this is definitely everything we do is a mind, body, spirit uh, journey. We can't separate that out. And so I am eternally grateful to you for your guidance with all of that and just want to share it with everyone. <laughs> well, and, and just a reminder, you did the heavy lifting. I, I am here to companion and it is such an honor. What I do with you and others is how it feels to me like it feels to you when you're singing and teaching. Yeah, I agree. Such a gift. We are blessed. blessed. You are just remarkable. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. And thank you for joining me and sharing all your thoughts. Uh, this is Megan Owen Cox. She is Mountain City Christian Counseling. She also, by the way, has a really great podcast called Pretty Psych. Uh, <laughs> that information in the comments section so you can get in touch with her if you want to uh, have a dialogue with her. But she is truly a phenomenal person and a singer and a dancer and a pianist. So she's she's one of us. <laughs> She gets it. I want to do, yeah. <laughs> totally get it. Anyway, I just want to thank you so much for sharing with us today, okay? Such an honor. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.